Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show discussing the wonderful world of landscape photography. This time I'm talking to Benjamin Mays about his landscape photography journey. Ben is a young self-taught photographer based in Sydney, Australia. He has a particular passion for both big and small landscapes evoking a sense of inspiration, wonder, awe and curiosity. A diverse approach in photographing natural places and shooting well outside golden hour into harsh light, which helps him capture unique ways of seeing our world. Ben talks about how he's decided to pursue photography as a career straight out of school and about an incredible adventure in the Blue Mountains, which he'll remember for a long time. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, absolute pleasure. Very pleased to have you on the show. Been following your stuff for a little while and uh, I was pretty happy when you said yes to coming on board. So um, welcome, welcome. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. What, what's the uh, the Ben May story? Oh, the Ben May story. Um, well... Yeah, I know I've been I've been kind of into art and stuff my whole life. So um yeah, like I grew up painting and drawing as a kid. Um when I was like a little toddler, we um uh like out in our back deck, we used to like do these kind of painting things where you'd you know splatter paint all over on one side, then fold the paint like the paper oh, yeah. in half, and then open it back up and then we'd hang it up to dry and we'd have dozens of those out in our back deck. So cool. yeah. spent lots of time as a young kid doing getting all that creative stuff out of the way and and then it moved to yeah drawing and stuff in primary school, which I really enjoyed. Um even went through like a graffiti phase in year seven. Not on like not that. on trains, just just in little books and stuff. <laughs> but um <laughs> all very legal. But um yeah I had many different kind of creative outlets so before what, I what, what um, was your tag uh <laughs> it was a uh, major I believe major cool. um yeah yeah it was a bit cringe but <laughs> it was fun at the time um we all, we all do cringy things in, in year seven <laughs> yep uh and yeah and then when I was in year seven I kind of I even got into like a graffiti sort of phase which is pretty a bit cringe but pretty fun at the time um and then, you know, I've been into music since I was quite young as well. I still play the guitar a bit. So, yep. um, yeah, kind of creative stuff has always been my thing. Um, never cared for maths. <laughs> so, um, and then eventually when I was about 14, I'd say in year eight, um, I found photography, picked up my dad's old uh, Nikon D70, I think it was. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, six megapixel kind of thing, um, yeah. which he oh, got in second hand of someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um so i played around with that for a few years and just yeah absolutely fell in love with it um you know taking torch long exposures in the backyard and yeah, um cool. doing the, do the the classic kind of steel wool spinning stage um uh, which is always fun um but yeah and then my my grandparents live up in the blue mountains up in katoomba so we typically go up there a couple of times a year and so doing kind of the walks around there that I'd always done, but taking my camera with me was kind of the start of really enjoying nature photography. Um, and then in 2015, my family went on a holiday to New Zealand and I got to photograph, you know, Milford Sound and all that kind of thing. And yeah, that was just when I really um, just started being really, really passionate about it. Um, 
I was on like a Nikon. Easy to get yeah. passionate about it in New Zealand, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It was my first time, you know, because Australia, except for Tasmania, really just has kind of glorified cliffs um, instead yeah. of mountains. So, yeah, being able to go to Milford Sound and stuff and see, you know, true fjords and mountains, um, yeah. snow-capped peaks and all of that was just incredible. So, um, yeah, that really kind of ignited. You the, the, realise how small the mountains in Australia are, don't you? yeah 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 that they've got their own beauty but they're just in terms of scale they're not the same um yeah so kind of from there i really just kind of hit the ground running um i was on my my old nikon d5200 and takina 11 to 16 for a while which is a pretty classic lens for a crop sensor lens um for us landscape photographers and then um i was just getting more and more yeah, keen for it as I got older. Um, I did it for um, my HSA body of work for visual arts in year 12, um, which was really fun, which I also combined with, you know, some oil painting and charcoal drawings and stuff. Uh, but then once I left school, I was just, yeah, all in with landscapes. I was you know, dead broke. <laughs> I had no job um, or anything like that straight out of school, but I was just spending, you know, the $10 I had in my bank account to, get for petrol so I could drive down to Kayama for the high cloud sunrise I was happening the next day that kind of thing like I just there was a fire under me and I could just yeah couldn't not shoot so I had a very productive year in 2019 um and yeah just 2019 is just when it blew up I'd say um yeah, yeah it's like start of the year I spent a few days up in the Blue Mountains in like a like a week of really stormy weather mm-hmm. and um I got some, uh, yes, some images up there that are still some of my all-time favourites, which includes my image Mutant, which is one with like the lightning inside the cave, Um, an incredible sunset at the Three Sisters and light beams in the valley and all this, yeah, this crazy weather. It's made for some really great photos. Um, Went on, I met up with Luke Sharkey in Tasmania um, in, in October of that year as well got yeah, just incredible conditions um which was thanks to his weather forecasting we had to completely change our itinerary um and just yeah go with the classic tasmania volatile weather the entire week but um yeah i was got to yeah become friends with you know luke shark he's a like one of tasmania's biggest tourism landscape photographer and um just got to make some really cool things happen um ended up deciding against studying uni and now i'm just it's shooting full-time nice nice yeah so, I, I guess what was it about that fire in your belly that made you say okay this is for me you know what what is it is it the the feeling you get when you're out shooting is it the is it the insta fame is it <laughs> what what is it that you that really gets you going uh it definitely wasn't the insta fame at the time <laughs> i was uh, i was at a measly about 1200 followers at the start of 2019 i think which took Everyone about five years to get there yeah. yeah um it was just because yeah i've always frothed on you know creative stuff and this is something that i followed you know landscape photographers um who i'd been greatly inspired by i felt followed very closely for a few years and being you know um, a high school student i had you know, commitments so I couldn't just chase conditions or um, afford to upgrade my gear or go on trips or anything like that. So once I got out of school, all that built up energy towards 
of inspiring, like being inspired by my favorite photographers, um, just kind of exploded into me, just making the most of every opportunity I can and shooting as much as I possibly could. Um, and I still have maybe not quite as much motivation because I've, you know, visited some of those spots many times, like a whole bunch of times now and stuff, but, um, I'm still, yeah, just as passionate about shooting these days because it's just, yeah, it's all I know now. Um, yeah, no, this is what I love. No, that, yeah. That's absolutely awesome. So what are the, yeah. what are the things that you're looking for in a composition or looking for when you, when you're out other than, you know, I mean, when you get great conditions, you get great conditions and, you know, mm-hmm. as long as you kind of know what you're doing, you can point the camera anywhere. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, are, what is it that you are looking for when you're, you know, trying to pull together a comp and, uh, you know, make that image something special? Um, repetition and patterns is something that I really look out for. Um, and whether that's in a wide angle kind of, you know, leading line kind of near to far sort of thing, sure. um, or if that's just like an intimate abstract kind of shot where you're you know there's you know lines in the rocks that mirror each other in a really fascinating way and you get out you know the mid-range to tell a photo sort of lens and focus in on that um often yeah it's patterns and consistencies and textures or interesting relationships with textures and shapes that um it's what catches my eye um and to start with i was definitely just only pretty much going for those epic dramatic wide angle shots, which I still really love to shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more and more over the last kind of two years, um, I've just really fallen in love with intimate and abstract sort of nature photography as well. So, you know, there's a really fascinating subject that would get drowned in a wide angle shot. I prefer to much, much more prefer to isolate it and explore its intricacies. Um, and just yeah showed that off as a subject and it's more subtle and quiet beauty rather than just the in your face kind of epic scene um so yeah i kind of i'll go kind of 50 50 between those those two kind of approaches these days depends on yeah just really depends on what's presented to me yeah no it's it's always uh you know that combination of conditions and you know, the, the landscape in front of you. And, you know, I, I think the important thing a lot of people uh, starting out don't really think about is, you know, what's in the foreground, what's in that mid-ground and what, what, what's in the background. But most of all, mm. what's the subject? What's the story that I'm trying to tell? And I think yeah. you know, in, unless you can sort of, you know, piece those elements together, it, it you know, it, it's tough to make a, a really good shot, you know. Mm, yeah absolutely um and yeah it's just a balance between um you know whatever is the focus making sure that's the star of the show not letting other things drown that out um you know if if the say you're shooting a seascape if the sea stack in the background is the subject if that's what you want and the sunrise behind it is if that's the subject then it shouldn't be drowned out in the foreground it shouldn't be three quarters foreground um and like it doesn't have to be a two by three super tall crop. It can be, you know, cropped to four by five to cut out some of that foreground to make sure that, you know, that distant subject is the focus, not, you know, the, the rock in the corner, you know? Um, so, so yeah, just keeping, keeping in perspective what you're actually shooting and what you want to show and convey through the shot. Yeah. yeah. In, in a lot of your shots, you know, as, as you said, you, you've got everything from those, you know, broad grand landscape, sort of wide angle shots down to down to the intimate with with the more intimate ones i guess what what is it that 
you know, get you get you, you know, going around those and what is it that you're trying to get across to people that, you know, might look at that shot and uh, say, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a tree trunk with some interesting bark or whatever, you know, what, what is it that you're mm. after in, uh, in in communicating with that shot? Um, I think it, what I'm communicating changes photo to photo. Um, although, yeah, kind of the overarching message would be that, you know, you don't need to be in Iceland or, you know, shooting an epic sort of scene to find, you know, beautiful subjects to shoot in nature. Um, it can, yeah, just be the most subtle of subjects, but everything has its own kind of, um, yeah, unique, you know, um, aesthetic to it and beauty to it. So, um, and like I've learned to kind of see the world and the natural world in shapes um, and interactions of shapes and colours and textures and light rather than, you know, this is a rock, this is a stick, this is bark. Yeah. Um, and so being able to identify, you know, patterns and shapes and swirls and colours and um, all that kind of thing in all a huge variety of different of different subjects, whether that's, you know, a fallen tree branch or it's a funky rock or it's a 14 millimeter grand scene. Um, you know, you can find that in anything and it's, it makes photography so much more enjoyable as well when you're not, because with those huge grand scenes, you're restricted to those conditions so much as well. Um, you can spend, yeah, you can spend a week in a place and just get completely skunked with the light get clear yeah. skies or smoke or just flat gray clouds and just come away with nothing and disheartened if you're all you're going for is those epic shots so um like i've got so many photos in my a lot of portfolio shots in my abstracts kind of portfolio which i really like that were either under a clear sky um like pre-dawn or post-dawn or with like midday harsh light kind of shooting like water reflections and abstracts and stuff like that or even i've got a couple where um like the sun was reflecting on wet sand and it yep. looks like it was just like either middle of the night or looks like fish scales or um yeah. it's, it's just can create these really interesting effects that you can play with and you can just have so much fun with it um yeah. if you just don't have the pressure on yourself to come away with some masterpiece um and just explore little things like that which yeah, yeah it's both more more fulfilling and um, more productive. It's yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I've I've got to say, I'm I'm sometimes guilty of not looking down at my feet or you know mm. over in another spot when you know conditions are are, are a bit foul. You know, sometimes it's mm. like, yeah, you know, do I do I even get out of bed some days? But uh, <laughs> but you know, I I think you're right. It's it's really about when the conditions aren't you know playing the way that you envisaged when you go out there, and I think a big part of it is not setting an expectation for yourself every time you shoot that yeah. you're going to come away with this epic landscape mm -hmm. shot, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody else uh, a, a few weeks ago and, you know, one of the things that uh, I think it was uh, Glenn Crouch um, mm -hmm. and he was saying that, you know, when you see those, you know, super burner you know skies and so forth they mm. they are actually rare when you look at every day of the year 365 days of the year you might get a dozen of those if you're lucky mm. if, yep. if you're 
you know. Yeah. And you get being out at the time that they happen as well, you know, mm. you might get five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, if you're lucky. You know? And then you look at a photographer's portfolio and it looks like it happens Absolutely. every day. Yeah. Absolutely, like... <laughs> every day, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they're the ones yeah. they're showing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly it. But, uh, and I, I think, you know, when, for, particularly for people that are new to the game, you know, it's, it, it's really important to notice uh, what's around you when conditions aren't, you know, aren't right so that you can actually, you know, pick up some stuff and it might might only be B-roll, you know, it might not be your, your, your most spectacular image. But to be honest, a lot of those images are very saleable. You, you see a lot of those, uh, you know, oh, yeah. turning up on people's walls because they like mm. that pattern or the colours or, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And for me, I'd like, you know, if you look at it from a fine art printing perspective, like I feel like, you know, if you look at, what art sells the most in terms of painting and stuff is the really simple basic paintings. Yeah. Um, it's not these, you know, the old, you know, romantic style paintings by they're Turner and Beerstad. They like they're not the ones selling, or I mean they do because they're by because they're renowned. But these days, like you know, popular paintings that someone will buy to put on their wall would be very minimal and abstract. Um, yeah. so it translates well for photography as well. It's not um like to me like those grand epic stuff they're, they're great for instagram they're great for catching someone's eye and getting likes but in terms of you know sellable work you know that minimal abstract stuff is just as viable um totally. yeah. so yeah it's uh definitely this I, and I, th I feel like it's definitely been gaining a lot more traction in the last few years as well um which has been really cool to see there's been some really fantastic creative photography emerging from more and more people um in the last few years so yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that what are your go-to places in terms of favorite like like the locations and yeah. stuff for that kind of thing um yes well i don't so i'm in georgia's river in sydney which is not near anything um anything super special oh, uh, so, I, don't know. I, I, I grew up down that way myself and uh the, yeah. there are some special spots if you know where to look and if, okay. if you know what you're after <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah i'd say my closest kind of I know wide angle spot local, so to speak, would be um like Cornell, uh, the cliffs of Cornell, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I've got captured one of my favourite shots before Vengeance. Um, yeah. And I mean, like just the beaches around there, you can use for abstracts and uh, just water textures and all that kind of thing. Any beach or coastline you can use for that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, and I mean, Cornell is fantastic as well for rock textures. Like I've gotten many of my favorite rock kind of abstracts as well around both yeah, Cornell and then. I mean, yeah, and then also any of the cliffs around Sydney, there's there's a lot of really good mm. textures in in the sandstone and and, and stuff. Yeah. There. Sandstone as a whole is just a fantastic subject for um, abstracts. Yeah. And actually, while I'm, yeah, the Royal National Park as well just has this certain section where there's these just pink deep pink and red and yellow kind of tones swirling through the rock and i don't know if that's from like different minerals and stuff i don't know the science behind it or the geology um but yeah like my i released a gallery earlier this year called geomorph um which was a like an exploration of rock textures and mm -hmm. shapes and lines and stuff um and so, so it's 33 images and i think 29 of those images were captured in the space of like three hours in one just afternoon in the national park in the royal national park i just went handheld um 
And just, yeah, I think I took about 500 frames in the space of a few hours, got into just pure flow state and just, um, yeah, just captured like rock textures and shapes and colors endlessly and ended up making, you know, 95% of that into a gallery. Sure. Um, as just, yeah, I, I love it. It's so fun. Um, so yeah, like just the cliffs of Sydney and stuff are a really great spot for inspiration for more abstract sort of shots for me. Um, right. In terms of more wide-angle dramatic stuff, yeah, Cornell and then Kayama as well, naturally, is yeah, ob yeah. obvious with um with Cathedral Rocks and Bombo Quarry. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're fantastic. And then the the Sapphire Coast down around Bermagui is just off the charts. Um, and there's more to it as well than just camel rock and horsehead rock. Um, yeah. like that, that that one tree rock spots blown up in the last two years. Yeah. Um, like three years ago, there were barely any photos of that. I think Will Patino was one of the early guys that kind of discovered it. And then now everyone's got a shot of it. Um, and then there's more to it still. Like some of the guys that live down there, like Casey Flynn, he's got some fantastic work from uh, the Eurobodala sort of region. And there's yeah. just so much fantastic coastline around there. Um, was, and like I said, go on. Yes. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I spent um, about a week at the start of this year. Um, just down there just exploring and came away with a couple of good ones at the icons but um yeah just found just some other fantastic places that just i've barely seen any shots of so um australia's got just some world-class coastline for sure yeah definitely definitely yeah um mm. i mean they i don't know if you've been uh to mimosa rocks or mimosa mm. park there uh, which is down between Bermagui and Tarthra. Mm, um, mm. And there's there, some of them are unmarked, but there's a, there's a couple of marked uh, trails. One's Araganu and the other one's mm. uh, Gillard's Beach. And okay. both of them, I, I, I've had some of the best times mm. In, mm. in my photography career, just getting down there mm. at, you know, ridiculous hours in the dark. Mm. The only person on the beach, you know, and just mm. as you say, getting into that flow state of just, you know, mm. so, and you know, even, even though in one one case at Gillard's there, the uh, it, it was just blue sky, yeah, mm. yeah, <laughs> but the flow around the rocks and everything was just awesome. Yeah, and the rocks themselves, you know, when the sun came up, you know, they turned yeah. this really bright orange, you know. And it was just, uh, just just really spectacular. So if you, if you mm. come that way again, uh, I def definitely direct you to those those two. And but there's there's just so many more places down there. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. I seen a shot from Ken Duncan that's around Mimosa Rocks, um, and I couldn't find the exact spot. I don't think. Um, but yeah, like there's there's a lot more out there, and there's also um, the Pinnacles as well down further south, kind of yeah. a little bit closer towards these and I, I shot that uh one afternoon i don't think i've came away with anything i've published but that's just a such a um unique kind of formation there as well yeah, it's so stunning stunning landscape down there yeah. Mm. yeah all that uh red and orange and white and pink and yeah, just, yeah just phenomenal colors just in the rock yeah. And, yeah it's like a hint of the desert on the coastline it's absolutely yeah, really unique yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, there's, uh, there's there's a lot of good spots down there. Mm. I'll have to I'll have yeah. to talk to you about uh, some of the spots around the the Georges River. There there are a few that if if you know where where to go, but it depends on what you what you're trying to get. But 
there's actually a, a few nice river scenes down there that uh, aren't, aren't too bad. Yeah, cool. All right. I'll, I'll have to yeah, have a look at those. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm in the middle of suburbia. It's flat. There's no hills. The the yeah. the, the parks around me, uh, apart from one, uh, are all sort of football field style things or playgrounds. Mm. So yeah, you know, you might have a tree or two, but there's <laughs> I'm I'm really itching to go somewhere where I can take a photo because <laughs> taking stuff of flowers in the backyard, yeah, being there, done that, yeah. do it again. Yeah. <laughs> Really, yeah. really itching to get somebody where there's a scene in front of me. But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sure we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, um, you you mentioned uh, you know catching up with Luke Sharkey down in uh, down in Tasmania. Are there any other mm. uh, photographers that you've uh, you know particularly followed to learn from? Um. I think uh, 2019, I started shooting a lot with uh, Maddie Hopkins and Ray Chow. Um, mm-hmm. shot, shot with them a fair bit. Um, made, yeah, and Brian McCarthy as well. Is, um used to be Horizon Photography, but now um, his Instagram is just Ryan McCarthy. He's into graphic design now, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, yeah, other guys like Michael Kenny, um, Isu Chung. Uh, only shot with him a couple of times, but... Um, yeah, yeah, got out a few times with that, that kind of crew, uh, which is good. Um, but yeah, I, I was mostly just teaching, you know, learning myself um, in terms of the shooting process. Like I've never done, you know, an in-person workshop or anything like that before. Um, and like, you know, Luke and I, even, you know, when we were down there, um, he and I have very different shooting styles because, um, you know, he's more, a little bit more tourism sort of style. Yep. Um, Whereas I'm more in sport, a little bit more more influenced by kind of like the fine art American guys, like um, like Alex Noriega and yeah, Ted yeah. Gore and all them and Enrico Fassati and stuff. Um, so yeah, we both kind of come from slightly different approaches. So, uh, what I what I did learn from Luke was uh, kind of location reading and um, scouting and weather reading and um, all of that kind of thing, which is you know another integral part of landscape photography. And yeah. you know, if, if it was me when we got down to Tassie, I would have just been like, oh, I guess we've got to stick it out through this crappy weather in our original plan. But no, we we first thing we did after I touched down was grab some lunch and we just completely rehashed our itinerary yeah. um, as he read the, read the weather for the week in different areas of the state. Um, yeah, he's just got such a wide, fantastic knowledge of the state. So it was, it was a great person to be with and definitely helped me get shots that I wouldn't be able to get um, without him, thanks to his, yeah, just knowledge of the whole state. And we covered, you know, we went from the very southern tip of Tassie to the very um, east coast and then uh, went all the way over to the west side and it, in doing so, touched the very top. So we pretty much covered the entire state except for driving through the middle, <laughs> uh, which we did at the end to get back to Hobart. But uh, we covered a lot of ground in a week, um, but it was yeah absolutely worth it. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's an outstanding location for photography, and uh, oh yeah, I mean, a- anybody gets the chance to get down there, um, mm. you know, a- a- absolutely. Same same with the Sapphire Coast, you know. Um, mm. But you know, like yeah. like anything, be be careful because the environments in both of those locations are, yeah. are quite fragile. So you know, yeah. don't go yeah. um, don't go trashing those places either. Yeah, yeah, Tassie's a bit of a volatile one. <laughs> Definitely my favorite. I say it's my favorite favorite place for photography, though. I, nothing really inspires me more than 
Tasmania, if I'm completely honest. So yeah. um, I've had three or four cancelled trips to in, since that September 2019 one to try and get back there thanks to COVID, but um, booked for January. So hopefully it goes through this time. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Alex Noriega and those uh, guys, you know, doing those um, sort of style. What what is it about that style that I guess grabs your attention and you know, and what is it that you're trying to emulate out of that? Yeah. Um, well, what well, yeah, like Alex Noriega, but then I have a very very diverse kind of. Um, I know range of inspiration when it comes to the photographers and styles that I really enjoy. Um, so yeah, like I really enjoy, you know, Alex and um, like Eric Bennett, like their work, but, you know, TJ Thorne as well, who does some of the most creative photography out there, especially with his um, intentional camera movement and double exposure kind of work is yeah, really, really fascinating nature photography. Um, and so, yeah, like from the crazy wide angle scenes of like, um, Enrico Fassati and Ted Gore um, and, you know, all those guys to, yeah, the really intimate scenes of TJ and Sarah Marino and um, Jennifer Renwick. Um, mm. I, yeah, I have a huge amount of different inspirations that I really draw um, a lot of, yeah, creative um, inspiration from. And it kind of, as <laughs> I've kind of got this Frankenstein of different styles, um, that has kind of made up my <laughs> portfolio. Um, that's good because I just enjoy so many different types. Like I, I yeah, but I, I, I the... think that's that, that's an important important part of learning the craft as well. And I mean, it, it, mm. in honestly, honestly, it's uh, not much different to painting and drawing either. You know, you mm. you you look at what you know some of some of the masters. You know, and okay, you might never reach that kind of level with you know painting and drawing there's not many that can mm. match a rembrandt you know for example yeah but yeah you can you can learn a lot from how he uses light and you can learn a lot about mm. how he you know how he puts his compositions together and uh, and so forth and yeah you, know, you might then take some of that you know use of light and you know shadow or or whatever and you know add that to your own kit bag and i i think you know the same goes for photography that you know, you, you, you pick up bits and pieces from different people and, you know, at some point you kind of mould that into your style, if you know, for, for want of a better term, you know. And uh, I, I think it's, um, I, I think every photographer definitely goes through that sort of grab bag phase of picking bits out. And, you know, I'm, I'm always learning, you know, I've, I've been in, in photography for, for, for a long time and it, it's something that I, I don't think, you know, I'm always seeing new stuff that blows my mind and they go, oh, you know, I'd love to be able to emulate that. How did they do that? You know, might hit them up yeah. on Instagram and ask them, you know, and not, you know, yeah. not just straight out, how did you do it? But, you know, start yeah. a conversation about, you know, what what the process was so that you you, you can understand it a bit better. Some people yeah, are absolutely. happy to share, others are a little bit more reticent, but, you know. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's, it's a kind of the situation of like, you know, the more, the less, the less, you know, the more stubbornly you think, you know, it, and then the more, yeah. you know, um, uh, like the more, you know, the, the more you realize, you know, very little. Yeah. The, um, yeah. And so kind of, yeah. So kind of just realizing you're not the smartest person in the room or, 
um there's so many people who have been doing it for longer better than me or you or anyone else um it's just it can be like you know if you get threatened by that then that can be discouraging but if you just if you draw inspiration from it it can be one of your biggest tool like assets in you know emulating you know and you know like i've i've got a quite a diverse shooting style you know i go from these wide angle shots to these intimate shots um 50 of the time which i'd say even though they are very different is now my style um and it kind of works together um but you know i've got other things that i really would love to learn like you know um vertical panoramas that show you know a kind of 180 degree scene kind of thing like um as a photographer from spain i think his name's pablo ruiz garcia and yep. he just does these you know magnificent panoramic scenes that just you know takes a whole another level of pre-visualization um to you know be like okay this is a straight line but if i shoot it as a pano it's going to look like a curve framing the foreground kind of thing um and being able to shoot you know epic color with that much more kind of like say you've got a focus second exposure blend for five different things like there's just a whole nother level of technique um, okay. And then on the other end of the scale is inter- intentional camera movement and double exposures and all that kind of stuff. Really creative, abstract photography. Um, yeah. And the, bo- both are things I'd love to get into in my next trips and outings um, just to further expand, you know, my craft and the, the images I can offer and unique perspectives that I can offer. So um, it's just it's just a matter of constantly pushing yourself because if you settle into being happy with where you are, I mean, it's not not that you should be down in yourself for where you are, but always kind of having aspirations for where you can, you know, take it to the next level, kind of thing. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely with you there. The um, particularly in, in in relation to the the, the panos, um, mm. uh, I, I I do a lot of bracketing and uh, you know occasion. And unfortunately, you 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 almost never see any of that of my work on uh, on Instagram because it just doesn't lend itself to you know being being shown on a screen. It's it's just so hard mm. Uh, mm. to get that. But when you when you print one of those, you know, it might be a meter and a mm. half long, but only sort of mm. uh, you know twenty centimeters high. Um, <laughs> it, it it looks it looks pretty amazing when you've nailed sort of you know thirty or forty frames um that you've then had to blend and you know focus stack and you know yeah it's it's a real it's a ball ache i gotta say that (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's a process (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah the rewards for for getting through it and you know getting something that you're really happy with are are amazing Mm. once you actually look at it but absolutely uh, yeah as I say, I, I, I just don't like the look of those sorts of things personally. That I've, I've seen a few of them, and they just kind of, they, they end up being kind of too small unless you can zoom right into them and, you know, mm. on, on a screen, they're just hard to, they're, they're mm. hard to, hard to portray that width of mm. the scene without, uh, without printing. Yeah, doing that, um, that kind of gallery ability on instagram is good help for that because you can kind of split it across and people you can have like a whole one and then have it full size and people can kind of swipe through the panorama almost which is a good kind of workaround yeah. for that but yeah it's definitely you know a lot of photography that is displayed on instagram is really should be truly appreciated in bigger form either on a website at the very minimum um yeah. and at best a print but yeah 
we live in a world of fast and easy consumption. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Everybody wants it in yeah. their hand, in the palm of their hand, not uh, not on a yeah. wall, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm think Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, um, I've just uh, last kind of year, I kind of got into collecting a few photography books, and it's just fantastic to um, be able to flick through a photographer's work, you know, in an actual physical book, and you know, at a size that's much bigger than what you see it on your phone. Um, yeah. So I've got a mini collection now, which is of really diverse sort of stuff. So um, yeah, if, if anyone listening wants like needs the push to buy a book from their favorite photographer i really recommend it absolutely so, yeah but but yeah. buy some from me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I actually don't have any books on sale at the moment ah. <laughs> I, I probably should put one together no uh, I, I i do print them for myself so i've, I've got about yeah. a dozen books and i mm. kind of do one each year of mm. best you know best say well i try try to cull it down to about 40 or 50 shots but um mm. yeah it's uh it, it's a great way of just looking at what you're doing and comparing you know when i look at the first one that i did probably oh first one i did was probably about seven or eight years ago i think the first mm. um and when you look at that it's not the quality of the pages or anything it's the quality of the photography and the change between mm. there and the the, the one that I'm working on at the moment, I, I can just see the the progression and it's, you know, it, it's a really good way of looking at your own progression. And it, it's, it's not that expensive. It, you know, depends on, depends yep. on how many photos you put in, how many pages. Yep. You with, but, uh, That's how you go with as well. Yeah. That, that, that sometimes works. Always looking for the specials on, uh, on uh, Vistaprint or, uh, or one of those. Memento. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or blurb. I, I use blurb quite a bit, actually. They're they're, they're pretty pretty good quality. But yeah, cool. um, yeah, do you print much at all, or not very much? I don't make many um, print sales. Uh, I love it when I do. Um, in the past, kind of maybe oh eighteen months, I've made probably four print sales. Um, that being said, uh, with my NFT collection that I've been selling. Um, a big a 24 by 36 inch print is part of that purchase sure. um, as well as a couple of other things. So once I'm out of lockdown, so I've sold 10 so far. So once I'm out of lockdown, I'll be, um, yeah, getting 10 big prints done, which I'm really excited for because yeah, a bunch of them are shots that I've never printed before and seeing them in large formats going to be really exciting doing it on a nice kind of um, the Hahn and Mule kind of fine art paper, which just looks fantastic. I printed yeah, on once before yeah. and um yeah, so looking forward to doing that. And um, I'd love to get more into the print market, uh, but it's very tricky to break into and um, something I've managed, a, a code that I haven't seen to be able to crack yet. Yeah, um, the, there's a lot of people unable yeah. to crack that code. It's, uh, it's yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's like anything. If if you get, get a name for good quality work and, you know, mm. word of mouth helps, you know, always yep. helps if you can get into a gallery. You know, yeah, but even there, you know, gallery sales, you know, um, mm. a lot of galleries take somewhere between, you know, 40 and 55 percent of, uh, mm. of the sale price. So, you know, you, you're you not always um, coming out of that uh, with, mm. with a lot of money, you know, but you might yeah. come out with a bit more reputation and, and so forth. Yeah. So. Actually, that being said, I've just, I completely forgot. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually onboarding with um, a new startup called Art Traveler. 
And uh, so okay. they're kind of uh, representing um, a small selection of photographers and um, painters and artists worldwide. And they'll be presenting, um, yeah, those artists and photographers to art collectors and stuff. And so my yeah, my photos will be with them for that, which I'm excited about. So that cool. I completely forgot. But so that, that might be something where I start getting some prints through. Um, so, yeah, yeah, excited for that, actually. I just sent them my kind of print files today. So, yeah, looking forward to that kicking off. Ah, nice. That's that's good. Yeah. So yeah. what what do they? Uh, obviously, they're an online uh, startup. Do they handle all the mm. printing and distribution, etc., worldwide, or how how does yeah. their system work? Yeah. So they've got um like they've got their printers and framers, and they'll be handling you know um yeah distribution and printing and all of that, and you know just taking um it's kind of a forty sixty kind of thing. Um, 40 going to them for the uh, kind of compensation and stuff because they will be, you know, presenting it to art, co- art collectors and marketing it and doing all that. Yep. Just sure. Fair enough. Um, doing all that promotion into the art world. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if they'll have a gallery space. I can't remember if that was part of the plan, um, but they're definitely, yeah, going to at least be, um, yeah, doing a lot of promotion in collecting, like to, you know, putting it in front of the right eyes, I guess. Um, mm. And then yeah, handling all the um, the printing and shipping logistics. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the important thing. Yeah, getting getting it in front of the right eyes. That's always the that's always the hard bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And especially like I think I've come to realize that you know different platforms are you know um, better for marketing certain things than others. You know, like marketing on Instagram is not probably the place to be selling high-end products or because, you know, most of your audience is going primarily going to be, you know, younger people who un- understandably probably can't afford to necessarily maybe join your, join your workshop and um, buy your prints and stuff. It's more on Facebook that I, I hear typically Facebook is a better um, way of doing maybe a sponsored post and getting print sales. And then a newsletter is probably even better for um, kind of workshop sales and that kind of, sort of thing. So yeah, I've, I've kind of been very Instagram focused for a few years now. So I'm trying to diversify that up a bit because it just makes sense that certain audiences won't be able to um, go for certain things that you're advertising. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that's yeah. important in, in your marketing plan is to, you know, understand your audience, understand the market that you're going for and understand, you know, how to, how to get your work in front of them because, you know, um, as you say, it's not much point, you know, dangling your, your line in um, in Instagram if your market's over in Facebook, for example, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned NFTs. I want to have a bit of a, a mm. talk to you about that. Um, when, what mm. you started in that? Oh, first, first off, let, let's rewind. Some some people won't know what they are. You mm. know, what, what, what's a 10-second or 30-second pitch on what uh, what NFTs are? Um, so, uh, yeah, an NFT is basically a way of, it's a form of crypto art trading and selling pretty much. Um, so it's integrated with the Ethereum, uh, blockchain and, uh, yeah, it's a way of selling one of one edition kind of art, um, mm-hmm. as a digital token rather than a physical piece, um, which, uh, yeah, so any, anything digital can pretty much be an NFT, you know, like the first tweets um, got sold as NFTs for millions of dollars. Um, yep. 
it can be 3D renders, it can be animations, it can be videos, it can be photos. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it can be digital trading cards. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, I, I, yeah, avatars. <laughs> oh, the mixed mixed opinions on those avatars. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 not a fan personally, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I for me, I I see it as a, a marketplace that's naturally emerged out of um, people putting spending more and more time online in the so-called metaverse and yep. um, placing more and more value into you know, digital assets rather than physical assets. Um, and people argue that they have no value because they, you know, they're not tangible um, products. But I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense. It's like saying that Spotify has no value because, you know, you can't touch the vinyl CD, you know. Um, there are people that prefer the old, like it's the same sort of concept. Um, yeah, the, 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 way, the way that sort of made it cement in my mind was, you know, you have uh, people buying and selling stuff for games like Minecraft or, you know, for, for mm. real money, you know, as mm. well as in-game money, you know, whatever the currency in-game happens to be. And mm. this is, I guess, another extension of that out into the cryptocurrency world so that, you mm. know, and, and, yeah. and the art world, you know, because, I mean, mm. you know, when, when you have a look at some of the things, you know, if someone's buying a, you know, a, a piece of, um equipment or something out, out of minecraft or world of warcraft or whatever it is you know yeah. that's actually a piece of digital art you know <laughs> like it or not mm. yeah absolutely and i mean it, it translates like the concept translates more naturally to things like you know 3d artists and animators and all that kind of thing because they can't sell physical pieces of their work they're digital creations and yeah. so it's you know, originally it was much more strong and kind of still is much more strongly that sort of market um, because you know, that, they can't sell a print of a 3D animation. Um, but photographers have been able to get in on it as well, which has been really cool. Um, it's a new way of selling for, you know, people that like myself that have tried for years to sell prints and have failed miserably. Um, it's, yeah, if something, if people place value in something, then it has value and value is subjective and, people are placing value in nfts so it's worth giving it a shot yeah um, i think yeah. One, of, one of the aspects of it that uh is interesting and quite different to some of the um you know particularly the physical market is uh the the secondary sales market because mm. on, depending on the platform you're on but most of the platforms allow you to actually claim a royalty on mm. a secondary sale so you can sell the original mm. Uh, or make the original sale to a collector and that collector mm. can then on-sell it, but mm. you know, up to 10% or 15% or whatever the platform allows can then mm. go to the original artist each time mm. it sells. So if that, yep. so if the, if that uh, work goes up in value, then each time mm. it sells, then, you know, you get this passive income yeah. stream coming back to, back to the original artist, which, you know, yeah. rarely ever happens in the, uh, in, in the physical art world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like if, you know, if Van Gogh were alive today, let's just, for example, say he, and I know his, his art went up in value after he died, yeah. but say he sold, you know, a painting for 150 bucks when he was 20. And then people all of a sudden valued the hell out of his work when he was 40 and sold it for 2 million in the painting world, he'd receive none of that. He wouldn't receive a dime. That's, that's exactly. But in NFTs, if someone said their royalties to 10%, then, you know, 
they receive 200 grand yeah. um which is you know rightfully so because it's their but like they created that painting they get the but they should get the value back and so it's something there's pros and cons to it naturally um mm -hmm. and i'm very i'm not naive to the things that the negative sides of it um but yes yeah, it's, it's it's a very exciting new space that's allowing a rare opportunity for kind of that ownership to be taken back to the original creators which is really cool yeah yeah i was in in a discussion uh in a in a space um was it last week or the week before anyway uh and one of the things that came up there was the the extension into uh i guess more mainstream sales that people you know are, are more familiar with and things like mm -hmm. uh music artists there's um a couple of artists that have actually started to uh put up their uh either songs or um film clips you know or music clips mm. uh, yep. you know, with video and everything uh yeah but what they do is actually it, it's it's not a one of one so you know, i mean you could do that and mm. yeah, but they're, they're actually fractionalizing it so that you may mm. have one one of five million and mm. so you know they can actually sell that same piece five million times and mm. whilst the premium that they ask initially isn't that high, mm. you know, yep. it, let's say they sell one, one of uh, five million at, at a dollar each, they've just made $5 million. But they're doing yep. that literally without going through any kind of other distribution. Spotify doesn't take mm. a cut. Apple Music doesn't take a cut. Yeah. CBS yep. Records doesn't take a cut, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. You know? And yep. so, you know, you, you can start to see where, you know, artists and creators themselves can mm. actually take back control of their their income stream totally. And absolutely, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, in in that discussion, there was also a bit about you know, um, it, it hasn't happened yet, but you could envisage where um, a football club, for example, you know, Manchester United starts selling its uh, season tickets that way. You know, so mm. that you yeah. You, you then use the token that you end up with on your phone to tap in at the gate when you walk yeah. in the gate, you know, and at the end of the year, yeah. that, that token expires because you can actually write that into the contract associated with the mm. token, but it has an yep. expiry date. And so, yeah, the, I, it, it's going to be interesting to see how much that expands and a lot will depend on, you know, mm. mainstream of adoption of cryptocurrencies, but there are communities I, I know aside from, you know, in, in Western cultures, there's certainly communities in, in Africa or South America where cryptocurrency is starting to become the, the default as opposed to, um, you know, the fiat mm. currencies because the local yep. fiat currency has virtually no values. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a, um, like there's a, a profile collection um, of 10,000 um, called the Sports Icon Lions Club. Yep. And they, like having one of those, I'm pretty sure I, like they have plans for it uh, so that, you know, owning one of those grants access to events and, you know, live ask me anything kind of chats with actual sports stars and stuff like that. So I think it's all, I think we're already starting to see the full creative use um, that these sort of like the NFT world has and, um, I think the sooner it moves to clean, um, uh, clean, clean, energy like, yeah. clean energy sources, then um, I think a lot more of the world will become a lot more enthusiastic about it as well, because that's uh, something that, you know, 
I was hesitant about as well as the um the environment yeah. like the the kind of um impacts of that um but I, I kind of my approach to that was how low my carbon footprint has been like I only got into nfts due to being in lockdown and my carbon footprint has been so minimally low because I'm not even leaving the house yeah that, um I think it, it, it balances out. Yeah, it's about yeah. it's about managing your own your your own individual carbon footprint, you know. And people have been running workshops for, you know, like selling out five to ten international workshops a year, making an, an income off that for decades, or not decades, but years and years, like photographers. Yeah, which is you know you know would emit an astronomical amount of carbon. Um, and I haven't yeah, ever frankly, heard someone with all the all the flights uh, and. Yeah, you know, like you're encouraging drive, people. Like, diesel driving around in, you know, yeah. in remote locations, yeah. et cetera, yeah. It's so, so much more than selling out a collection. Things when they start talking about it. Yeah. yeah, and I've never heard a single person argue it and say like, oh, you're a, you're a hypocrite if you run workshops because of the carbon emitted by catching a plane. Um, you know, if you do both, maybe that's something to consider. Maybe you either do NFTs or international yeah. workshops, but it's... as like I understand the concern, um, but the clean energy is on the horizon in terms in the crypto world, and planes aren't going anywhere in terms of being like not having an environmental impact. But people no, are they're, they're going to be having a, a, a fairly negative impact for for some time. I think the other the other thing is that there are ways of offsetting, um, uh, you know, over and above. What you know, you might you might have your own lifestyle changes, and I know I'm, I'll mm. be talking to uh, um, somebody uh, very soon, actually, on on the podcast, who's you know yep. even giving up red meat as part of their you know they've, mm. they've sort of fully committed to getting into offsets, yep. so they're they're yep. paying you know to to offset every mm. ounce or whatever of uh, carbon emissions that their transactions create. Then yep. they're also, you know, doing things like changing their lifestyle to, you know, to, yep. to fully commit to being able to have a have a clear conscience, I guess, about uh, about using those sorts of platforms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm with NFTs. I, I'm part of um, the Give Back to Nature group, which is yep. donating um, a percentage of sales as well. And so I have like part of my collection is that I'm 10% of anything I earn is going for going to back towards environmental charities. Um, and so already I've been able to donate a grant towards um, uh, two different charities, which has been Give Back to Nature, which cleaned up the equivalent of two and a half thousand plastic bottles from our beaches and then um, uh, money towards the Wilderness Society Australia um, towards helping protect the Tarkine rainforest. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, next I'll probably put a whole bunch towards um, Greenpeace, who do some just absolutely fantastic um, con conservationist work over here in Australia and internationally. So, um, yeah, I, I've been able to donate to environmental causes more than I like. I've far more than I ever have before because of this these sales. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot more nuance to the to the discussion than uh, you know. Um, the yeah, NFT the carbon that yeah then the carbon footprint from a single sale so yeah, yeah. no definitely definitely and I yeah you know, I mean I you you and I are never going to solve the the world's problems through uh, through talking about it here but I think yeah that education <laughs> for people and that getting people to understand you know a what they are b how they're used b what the pros and cons 
uh, are, you know, mm. uh, it's important for people to understand it to be able to either make a decision whether or not to participate. Um, mm. You know, uh, I, I, I see some positives. I see some negatives. You know, I also, mm. you know, I, I see some of the same um sort of uh, behaviors i guess that you might see in the physical art world as well where mm. you know some somebody will get popular get known and you know there'll be a a cluster around you know that that sort of person um and mm. you know, people trying to emulate them and and so forth but um yeah yeah the the you know, on the whole i think it'll probably be where art sales kind of start to, to, to shift to. I think there's always a place for physical. I don't, you know, Absolutely. So, you know for things like sculpture, you know, I mean, that's always going to mm. be, you know, in, yep. in the physical realm, you know, though, you know, you see mm. some of the digital artists doing effectively the same sort of thing. But um, mm. uh, I, I think the physical nature of being able to touch and feel a sculpture is, is an important part of it, you know, mm. but part of the experience. I, I, yeah. I, I really just see them existing as two separate marketplaces and like they, they don't really interfere with each other because no, know, definitely digital, not. yeah, yeah like digital ownership is so different to physical ownership of an artwork and I think there's such a large amount of people that'll value both that I think they'll both be able to just kind of coexist as different forms of art collecting and selling um, yeah it'll just be interesting to see how it progresses were you across the uh, open sea um scandal for one of a better word where uh, oh, i saw that today yeah the insider trading that was a bit yeah. crazy the, um, the, the, for, yeah. for those that don't know the head of product for open i believe it was was uh trying to or was snagging um sales before they'd actually launched or just before they, they'd launched or just as they mm -hmm. launched because he sort of knew that they were coming and so got first mover advantage and then flipped them. Wasn't flipping them for a lot, which was kind of strange. A lot of people were scratching their heads as to why somebody that, you know, it was in a position like that was doing what they were doing. But um, I, I guess that that thing, that sort of behaviour, you know, and there, I've seen a few others where, you know, people have been um, convinced into selling their art collections that you know their nft collections before release um and then them being flipped for a, a significant profit um you know not allowing the market to be the market um do you see regulation being an answer to that or do you think that regulation is just going to be very difficult it'll be difficult but i think it'll happen eventually um as people like as it becomes more and more widely adopted um which we're seeing you know with visa bought a crypto punk which you know to those who aren't familiar crypto punks is the biggest um nft collection out there it's ten thousand little avatars that are going for millions of dollars and um you know uh, macquarie bank i think has started accepting bitcoin and stuff like that so i think as it becomes more and more widely integrated and accepted and normalized um there's just there's got to be regulation uh like it, like there's regulation that happens in the standard financial world and um you know there's serious you know punishments for insider trading so i think it's the wild west in nfts at the moment and it definitely is yeah. people can kind of get away with a lot right now but i think at some point it's going to be regulated a lot more
Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can see, you know, like, like there's a dark web, you know, I can still see the black market still, you know, carrying on at, as there always will be. You know, there's, there's black market in the physical, and I'm not necessarily talking about the physical art world, though. There's definitely definitely a black market there in uh, in some yeah. places, but yeah. uh, you know the, I, I think those the, those sorts of things will end up being those those pieces that end up sort mm. of shuffling off into a dark corner because regulation comes mm. in. I mean, I, I know mm. um, I, I was in a conversation that was talking a bit about the uh, the, the tax implications of uh, mm. you know buying and selling. Uh, mm. NFTs and so forth, and the, the the profits that you make out of that being, you know, attributable in in Australia anyway to capital gains tax and yep. similar sorts of things overseas, and all the all of the mm. I know all the tax offices they're already starting to, you know, make their sort of stake their claim that well it's it's money so we want some mm. of it yeah yeah. Yeah, you know, once the tax office has taken notice of it, you can guarantee the banks and everyone else will, and that, mm. that'll that'll bring regulation. I think I think you're, you're mm. you nailed it there. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, getting back to the photography side of things, uh, it was an interesting little detour. But um, yeah, <laughs> what, what do you think you've learned about the world through photography? Um. I've definitely gained a much stronger appreciation through like of the natural world, like, um, and yeah, just seeing, seeing things differently really. And I mean, that's a bit of a cliche answer, but it's true. Um, it's very much true. Um, like, yeah, like I, when I, you know, go for group walks with my grandparents and then the blue mountains when I was 13, before I kind of got into photography, like I think it was cool, but wasn't anything super special, but you know, now, a rock with a cool pattern is special to me. Like any little, um, so many different things in nature that most people would just not care about are just really fascinating and um, fascinating to me and just so cool. And I just have a huge appreciation for um, the world we live in, which is, yeah, to become a passion for conservation and, um, you know, uh, kind of joining causes with um, like charities and stuff that I really, um, whose work I really admire um, and just kind of, yeah, using my photography to both create beautiful photos and um, use it as a creative outlet, but also to help kind of bring a bit more awareness to um, yeah, the world that we live in, which I'm, I probably could do more and I'm trying something I'm, I'm, I'd like to try and use to bring a bit more awareness for, um, and, uh, which I think as photographers, if we're displaying the natural world, I think it'd be great to show people you know, what we have to lose um, if we yeah, don't take care of it. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. What's the, your most memorable experience you've had uh, out shooting? Oh, I've had a few of those. Um, uh, one, one stands out above the rest, which is, um, yeah, that lightning, lightning cave shot that I've got up in the Blue Mountains is still probably the scariest and just most, yeah, ridiculous experience I've had shooting <laughs> um, in the last, yeah, however many years it's been. Yeah. So what, what's yeah. what's the story behind that? How, how did that come about? Um, you're obviously in the Blue Mountains. What were you doing in the yeah. car? Uh, so, yeah, so it was like a, it was January 2019 and I was jobless at the time and um, 
I really wanted a photo of the three sisters with the lightning strike behind it, which I saw but didn't capture while I was up there. So um, I, my, since my grandparents live in Katoomba, I just drove up having no commitments and just spent you know, four, four or five days there mm -hmm. um, just shooting the really stormy atmospheric conditions, um, which was, yeah, fantastic. Um, and then one of the days I noticed... Um, I was looking at the Bureau of Meteorology and there was, you could see the beginnings of a pretty intense storm building out to the west. Um, and I knew that that cave at Lincoln's Rock in Wentworth Falls, um, I knew that that faced the sunset, which is west. So I knew that if yeah, there was some nice drama happening, that that would be able to capture it quite well. Um, and so I was like, yeah, if I, if I go there, I could just shoot it. And if I don't get time to get out before it hits, I can just wait out the storm in the cave famous last words <laughs> um so uh i kind of got there and the sky is already just like black and on ominous it was like about three o'clock in the afternoon probably 2 30 i think um but it was like it was like almost as dark as if it was getting close to dusk um and so yeah i got down into the cave and set up and this just formation of a storm just started developing and it was just sending down the most aggressive lightning i've ever seen like there was no trailing across the sky none of that flashy stuff it was just bang just straight down to the earth like i had no time to waste it was the most aggressive lightning i've ever seen um and it was just yeah sending bolts down more and more regularly um i just, just started to like block out the sun and um i was shooting kind of uh, in the left corner of the cave for a bit, which is where a bit more lightning action was. But then I transitioned over to the right side of the cave, which is the classic kind of composition from the cave, which is the one I ended up with. And um, yeah, from that corner was where this the cloud started to extend kind of down into the valley. Like it was just this kind of, like it was alive. Um, I just started, it was just like so heavy and laden with storm water and energy. That was just like, like it was sagging down into the valley. Um, and so the image is actually a, a time blend of about two minutes um, or maybe three minutes. Um, so the lightning bolt happened at one point in the same position in the frame, um, but then the cloud got a slightly more gnarly formation about three minutes later. Yep. So rather than, um, you know, have one separately with the lightning and then one separately three minutes later with the, the best of the cloud formation, I just kind of um, blend, yeah, blended them together just to... Um, tell the best part, you know, of this, tell the story of the shot in one frame. Um, so it, it was yeah, very, but no, no, I wouldn't even consider it a composite. It was really just kind of layer over that texture of the cloud with the lightning bolt. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have a lightning trigger or anything like that. So I was just having to manually fire every two seconds or every five seconds because when it because it was still relatively light it wasn't nighttime i couldn't do like a five second ten second exposure yeah, right. i had to keep it about two seconds because otherwise the lightning got washed out by the ambient light um so it took a lot of just a lot of frames um and then eventually just turned into this wall of water like that was just coming towards me there was no visibility um and then it just hit like it was like a barricade like it was just um <laughs> just getting blasted by sideways rain and wow. like grit. Like it was just so much dirt being blown in as well. Like it was yeah. kicked up from around me. And like, I had this tiny little pathetic umbrella um, <laughs> and that was being blown inside out from the wind bouncing off the back of the cave and then into my umbrella. So it was just like, yeah, um, blown complete, made completely useless. Um, 
and I was just pummeled. I was just sitting in there getting pummeled. And there's a, in the off in the right corner, there's a slightly lower little bit that you can sit in. So I tucked myself into there. Um, and there's but there's still a hole that like right in front of that. So I wasn't really protected from the elements at all. Um, I was just kind of sitting there with my umbrella flailing inside out all the time. And my um my camera gear I had at the time was just like in the kind of sling over shoulder bags that was sitting yep. next to me with like water pooling up around it and like starting to absolutely soak it. And I was just praying for like 30 minutes, like just hoping that I'd get out alive because it was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I can just hear constant lightning and yeah, after maybe 25, 30 minutes, um, uh, the rain died down to not, bucketing but just standard kind of rain and the wind was still strong but not as strong um so i scrambled out of there and the, the cave for people that aren't familiar with it you've got to kind of climb up about two meters up this kind of jagged rock to get into it um so i scrambled down that facing outwards and lost a few pieces of um like kind of filter cases and stuff to the wind um cut, cut myself up a little bit getting down um and then just to the left of that cave is a much larger cave that's just directly on the ground. You don't have to climb up to it. Yep. Um, so I sheltered in there for a bit longer uh, just to wait till the rain and lightning died down more. Um, and then after maybe another 30 minutes or so, maybe 40, I, I can't even remember the time, just it's a, a bit of a blur in my brain, but probably between 20 and 40 minutes, um, the rain died down enough for me to, and the lightning wasn't so regular. Um, and so I decided to sprint up and make a dash for my car, which was, um, so yeah, these caves are below a big flat kind of open cliff top. And my car was kind of maybe hundred, hundred meters away or so from the edge of the cliff top. Uh, so I decided to make a dash for it. And as I'm running across this open, completely exposed cliff top, I realized I'm hiding, <laughs> holding both a metal umbrella and an aluminum tripod in my hand, <laughs> like a walking metal conductor, this lanky guy with two lightning rods in his hand. Um, <laughs> so I'm freaking out, but I've got no choice but to try and get, make it to my car. Yeah. And so I crossed, I crossed the cliff, make it to the, my car. And as soon as I reach my car, a bolt strikes about 50 meters away from me at the top oh, of the wow. cliff. Um, it was like this deafening crash and it just sent me into overdrive. I was just like, so, so close. Um, yeah. so I just like chucked my tripod and umbrella away from me just like, get this crap away from me and started fumbling with the keys and i'm just oh, like, you still weren't in the car when that happened wow yeah yeah i was standing outside i was standing outside i hadn't even made it into the car at that point and i'm fumbling with my keys and just like yelling with um adrenaline and shaking <laughs> and eventually i managed to get inside and like just chucked my camera and everything and tripod and everything in and just sat down and was just like what just happened <laughs> you know yeah. um it's the kind of thing where like you go on a crazy roller coaster and your body can't process it, but it was that times 10. Um, yeah, nice. And yeah, I was shaking for a few hours afterwards. Like it was a, 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 probably a bit of a traumatic experience. I'd say um, yeah. like, I'm. that's a, it's a funny, crazy story to tell now, but at the time it was, yeah, it was struggling. Yeah, um, it would have been pretty intense. That, that, that's insane. yeah, that's absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, and my grand grandparents, having lived there since two thousand and eight, I'd say uh, they reckoned it was probably top three most aggressive storms they'd ever seen yeah. up there in a dec in a decade of living in the Blue Mountains. They reckon it was one of the three most insane storms they'd ever seen up there. Um, and you know, driving back on the highway from Wentworth Falls, there was just debris everywhere and there was emergency vehicles driving up and down the highway and 
Uh, I imagine the SES would be busy that day. Um, And I also, actually, as another crazy thing, I found out later that if lightning, so a cave is one of the worst places you can hide out a lightning storm in because apparently if lightning strikes the clifftop above the cave, the cave can act like a spark plug. Um, (laughs) And so and that, that bolt that struck about 50 meters away from me would have been pretty damn close to exactly the top of the cliff where I was. Yeah, wow. And so I don't I don't like to think about what would have happened if I was still in the cave. So <laughs> I was very, very lucky to come out of it unscathed. I'll, I'll be without a few scratches. Um, but yeah, it, at least I came with a, with a shot. So yeah, <laughs> we've got well, something that, to show. That's the main thing. Something to show for it. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't fruitless at least. Yeah, so, I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's those sorts of stories though, I guess, make those shots even more valuable to you, you know, because, yeah. because of the experience of it, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so, yeah it, was, it was crazy. <laughs> what aside from running away from uh, lightning what do you like to do when you're not out shooting uh what am i not out shooting uh well during covid um the last couple of months i've naturally spent a lot of time inside um but before that before this kind of lockdown for the last few months i was really just getting into casual hiking um yep. just without my camera just really enjoying it um you know the royal national park doing the coast track um from Bundina to Otford, did that a couple of times. Um, there's some nice kind of overnighters in the Blue Mountains. Did one, uh, the Narrow Neck Trail, really enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, just just getting out into the outdoors is something I've, um, in the last kind of, you know, eight months before lockdown, I started really enjoying. Um, and the more, pardon me, I find the more you kind of, time you spend out in nature even without a camera is the more you kind of come across subjects that inspire you and you realize you could come back to and shoot um yeah and you know that that time where i spent a few hours in the national park and got you know 28 portfolio shots for that gallery um i believe like that that was fostered by having walked past that section about three or four times from doing the coast track um, and just doing national park walks. I'd, so I'd seen those textures a bunch of times and taken photos with my phone and stuff. But yeah. um, having developed that film familiar, familiarity is the word um, and just um, walking past it and seeing it as a potential subject just really um, fostered this amazing kind of um, really productive session um, yeah. of kind of helped me get into that flow state when I did eventually come back to photograph it. Um, but yeah, and then when I'm not doing that, I'll just be at home. I'll hang out with my partner a bit and play, play a little bit of music here and there. Although, um, yeah, photography stuff and photo editing and um, this most of my life, to be honest. <laughs> it's both my hobby and my passion and and my job now. So, yeah. 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 I'm pleased, pleased that you are a photographer. Um, <laughs> speaking of photographers, are there any out there that I I should be talking to for for the podcast? Uh, Aussie, just Australians? No, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm doesn't matter. It's landscape photography world, so I'll talk to people from okay. anywhere as as long uh, as I... as long as they can speak some form of English. I'll be happy to talk to them because I don't speak too yeah. many other languages. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Uh, let me think. Um, yeah, take take so your time. We can edit, out there. edit out the yeah. 
the thinking. Um, I'll I'll say a few underrated people that I don't have much attention just to help them out. Um, there's a guy over in New Zealand called Michael McGee who has some really fantastic work. I think he lives in the North Island. Yep. Um, he's just got some really cool forest work. Um, and he, you know, does some fantastic abstracts and intimates as well. Um, uh, who else? I run a, a landscape photography discord with um, Tristan Todd and a couple of other guys. Uh, okay. So they're kind of mo- mostly Canadians in that, but a lot, bunch of Australians as well and some Americans, uh, a couple of people from Europe too. Uh, we've got about maybe 480 members in there at the moment. Cool. Um, so anyone listening, jump onto the Landscape Photography Worldwide Discord. We'd love to have you in there. Um, but yeah, Tristan Todd would be great. He, um, just, he, he lives in Vancouver and just... Uh, shoots heaps of really cool forest work like rain some of the amazing lush rainforests they've got over there um yeah like it, some of the local sydney guys like he chan maddie hopkins i yep. uh, would be really cool to have on um cool. uh, yeah yeah i've i've got a long list but uh you know i always like to to add to it if i can yeah yeah all right, brilliant. Um, I've got one more question for you, and it's uh, the most important question that I can ask tonight. Do you like pineapple yep. on pizza? See, a few years ago, that would have been a yes, but now it's a no. I've, wow. um, yeah, I, uh, I used to be a fiend for a ham and pineapple Hawaiian pizza, but I'm um, much more traditional Italian now uh, in terms of in pizza enjoyment. So, um yeah, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a no now for pineapple, but a few years ago it would have been a yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I, think you're, I think you're my first swinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've kind of, um, I've really started to enjoy like the Napolitana style ones, like with just like classic margarita or um, ham and mushroom kind of thing. So, yeah, pineapple is becoming more of, more of a big no for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Oh, well, yeah. thanks very, very much for uh, taking the time out to talk to me to, tonight, Ben. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I uh, hope you have too. And, um, you know, fantastic to, you know, hear some of, uh, you know, how you do your thing and um, so forth. Where can people find your work? Um, yeah, so people can find me on Instagram at benjamin.maze. You can find me on Twitter um, as well at benjamin mays uh, my website is benmaysfineart.com um, i'm coming out with a revamped website but it should be the same address uh, shortly um, i'm on discord in that landscape photography worldwide chat um, that we run which is really cool and facebook as well at ben mays photography um, but yeah that's about it sounds good thanks for having me on as well grant really appreciate you taking me on it's been a good chat yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for coming. It's uh, it, it, it's been great. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'm going to be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne and hope to see you out shooting soon.